Coming up on Mayo Clinic Q&A, it's time to ask the Mayo mom. Pectus excavatum refers to the indentation of the chest. It's most commonly noted in early puberty as children are going through growth spurts. Pectus excavatum can be repaired with surgery that fixes the shape of the bone in the middle of the chest called the sternum or breastbone. This surgery will help ensure that the lungs and heart are not squeezed by the inward curve of the chest. The most common way is the minimally invasive approach. And that approach is using a bar to lift the sternum. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Angela Mackey, and welcome to Ask the Mayo Mom on Mayo Clinic Q&A. I'm a pediatrician at Mayo Clinic Children's Center in Rochester, Minnesota, and host of this show about pediatric health topics. Today, we are talking about pectus excavatum and repair of this condition using a minimally invasive approach with cryoablation. Joining us for this discussion is Dr. Denise Klinkner, a pediatric surgeon at Mayo Clinic Children's Center, where she is the practice chair of the Division of Pediatric Surgery and the director of the Pediatric Trauma Center. Dr. Klinkner, thanks for coming back again. Dr. Mackey, it's very nice to join you again. This is um, such an exciting topic because there's there's so many things that continue, I feel like, to advance in the, in the way that you care for these children. So I'm, I'm really excited to hear an update on, on how things are. I'm happy to share them. Um, I think, you know, pectus excavatum is definitely something that um, parents uh, start to ask questions about. And we're, I'm happy that we have this venue in order to share that information. Yeah, absolutely. So let's start off by just describing, um, in case someone's listening and they haven't heard of this this diagnosis before, what is pectus excavatum? Pectus excavatum refers to the indentation of the chest. Um, it's most commonly noticed um, in early puberty uh, as children are going through growth spurts. Um, it's sometimes uh, more noticeable than the summer because they have their shirt off for swimming. Um, some people say, well, is it only in boys? And the answer is it shows up in girls as well. Um, and it's more so um, noticeable because um, clothing doesn't fit quite right. Um, they may not be able to wear um, a normal fitting bra, for example. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I know that something that we can start seeing earlier in life um, and you and I have collaborated mm -hmm. on patients that have been younger. Um, how is this diagnosed? Um, is it just based on observation and appearance? The, the initial diagnosis is definitely based on the appearance of it. Um, then when we try to um, grade the severity, that is when we look at um, uh, what's called the Haller index. And the Haller index is a measurement um, looking at the um, width of the uh, chest and dividing that width by the distance between the sternum and the vertebral column. Uh, this uh, can be done on a chest x-ray, which is our preferred modality because the um, patient um, uh, cost is, is significantly less. So um, I uh, do have a couple examples of uh, for those who can, can see this, uh, the measurement across on the chest, um, looking um, facing the patient is um, divided by that distance between the, the sternum and the um, vertebral body um, on the side view. And the first example um, is uh, Haller of uh, 3.6. Uh, the uh, minimum number it needs to be is 3.25. Um, and the, this is another one just showing that um, as they become um, that space between the sternum and the vertebral bodies becomes more narrow, 
um, that Haller index becomes higher. Okay. So for those listening on our podcast um, that aren't seeing, you know, we're showing a, a chest x-ray, you're, you're saying that the higher the number, the more kind of pronounced um, the indentation is, is that correct? Correct. Um, and some can be as high as, uh, you know, seven. Um, and it just, okay. and, and the deeper it gets, the more the heart will shift over uh, because there isn't much space between the sternum and the spine then. Okay. Is there um, any type of other imaging that is needed? So sometimes I start to think like, would you consider like a chest CT or um, something else to get a really good visualization of Kind of how that chest wall is being formed? Yes, uh, the chest CT um, is um, another standard modality. Um, it's about 10 times more expensive than a chest x-ray, but um, that chest CT um, will sometimes give us more information. Uh, for example, um, in this one, the um, asymmetry um, may be more pronounced than what you can see on a chest um, x-ray, and we can have a correction index calculated. Uh, the um, measurements uh, are the same of being across the chest and between the um, spine and the sternum, but you can see the more detail of um, how the heart can be um, imprinted by the sternum, and, and that um, anatomy uh, may um, um, convince, um, uh, us to, to move forward, um, uh, with the repair because, um, that repair would give more space for the heart to expand and contract the way it's supposed to. Does, does the pectus, um, excavatum, does it ever, um, have, a, a, an impact on cardiac output or heart functioning? The deeper the Haller index, um, the thought is that um, the heart shifts over and the um, venous return is not as prominent. So um, the patients um, may tire more easily when it comes to activities because the uh, return uh, to the heart is not ke keeping up with the uh, flow that's needed to, to move forward. Okay, so you mentioned um, at it's, you know, the higher the Haller index, you may uh, be more likely to consider um, some type of correction for this deformity, especially if it is affecting their stamina, their, um, their heart functioning, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So how do you correct this deformity? Well, there are um, a couple different ways of uh, doing it. Um, the most common way is the minimally invasive approach. And that um, approach uh, is using a bar to uh, lift the sternum. Um, and the, the bar goes um, over the ribs uh, and then on the front part of the chest, into the chest, under the sternum, and then back up out of the chest and uh, outside. So it's um, bracing it uh, up um, until um, growth has uh, finished and they've sort of um, matured skeletally and stabilized into that configuration. D does, um, does timing of their, like where they're at in their growth spurts or their growth potential matter when you would consider this since you were saying you were expecting more potential growth? Yes, uh, the original um, procedure was being done um, in patients as young as two, and they realized that when you have a bar in the position of a two-year-old chest, that chest develops in that position. So we um, prefer that they are closer to adult body habitus, um, you know, between 13 to 15 is a, a great age because they're still flexible and yet um, closer to the adult size. Um, they, they, um, 
earlier you do it, the, the more potential for um, um, shifting and pinching of the chest because of that bar. It's, it has to be um, fit to that chest uh, at the time of that surgery. Now there's probably less um, or more invasive approaches. Um, and we're really focusing on this minimally invasive, um, approach. How does this, um, why is this considered kind of more ideal, um, as opposed to maybe more of an open repair? The, um, nice, um, part of the, um, repair minimally invasive is that the incisions are off to the side and they're much easier to um, hide. Uh, the open incision, it can be across on the bottom of the chest or it can be up and down. And it requires re removal of the segments of cartilage up and down and breaking that, that sternum uh, to then be uh, able to be lifted. Um, this uh, the open report approach does still need a bar, but it's um, uh, only needed for six months. The um, it, that it can be one advantage. Um, I've had one family member or one patient ask for that, but it is about a six to eight hour operation um, and um, um, does require re removing the pectus attachments. So the um, minimally invasive approach um, preserves all the musculature and uh, allows for um, correction of the defect with um, scarring essentially off to the side. Okay. So they both have a bar, um, approach, mm -hmm. but what if, um, what if the patient has a metal allergy? Is that, is it still something that they can, can have in their part of their repair? When we know that a patient has, um, a metal allergy, we will arrange for, um, a CT scan if they haven't had one. And then, um, a titanium bar, the titanium bar, uh, comes to us, um, from the company uh, already in a shape designed on based on the CT scan. And that um, bar cannot be um, bent by us when it gets here. So um, it, it, it is what it is when we um, get it. Um, it's also significantly more expensive. Um, so we, we tend to um, uh, only use it if we know that there's an allergy. Okay. So how long does this, this like more minimally invasive approach take? I know you mentioned the other one's quite, quite long. Um, this one, um, the passing of the bar is about 45 minutes to an hour. Um, the, um, a pain uh, treatment that um, we've added to our modalities includes cryotherapy, which is um, this little probe that goes um, uh, to the nerve underneath the rib. Um, and that um, is done through the same incision that um, they already have on the side. Um, and that uh, it takes two minutes per rib. And we do usually three through seven um, because those are the ribs that are attached to the, the sternum that's being uh, moved. And that um, uh, part. And like I said, is uh, going to add at least 20 minutes um, to the procedure. Uh, so usually about um, an hour and a half to two hours of operative time. Okay. And this, the cryoablation, what is that? Can you explain a little bit more for families to understand what that process looks like? Yes. So the, uh, the um, specially designed probe um, is um, uh, protected along the side. So any other tissue is not affected. And the very end of it is applied to the um, area that we want to freeze. And when we freeze it, um, it gets to very, very low temperatures uh, and um, causes the, the nerve um, sheath to um, disrupt. 
then um, uh, in, at least in adolescence, um, that nerve regrowth um, will um, slowly improve over four months. So um, by that point, um, the patient has long recovered from their surgery um, and surgical pain, um, and uh, they start to get that sensation back. Oh, that's that's really cool. Is there anything else that is done in conjunction to to the cryoablation to help with pain control? Yes, the pain, the cryoablation, it takes about 24 hours to, to kick in. And so we also put um, local in um, the same distribution that will um, cover about six to eight hours. And mm -hmm. then they get IV medications in the OR. Um, and afterwards, um, they, they, we work closely with our anesthesia colleagues. Okay. So like a local anesthetic that's injected in that area? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep, just, just like what they get at a dentist's office. Okay, excellent. So what what does recovery and hospital stay look like for these patients? The, with the addition of cryotherapy, the patients have been able to go home the next day. Um, we're almost to the point of sending them home the same day, um, and, but we're not quite there yet. Um, I think uh, the um, uh, benefits of, of being able to um, do this um, cryoablation means Patients don't need as much narcotic and they can um, go home uh, and um, particularly in COVID era, um, families have been very appreciative of um, the, the fewer disruptions to home life and, and being able to be outside of the hospital. Excellent. Um, and so what is the recovery period like? Um, are, are they going to be on um, activity restrictions for a period of time and weight restrictions? The um, weight restrictions are um, in the very early period of time, um, usually um, the, by three months, they're on every activity. We um, modified that um, as well. It used to be six months, but even by three months, um, patients are able to do contact sports. And so timing of repair often is between whatever sport activity is most important to them. Okay. <laughs> um, um, I'd say most um, patients are back to school within one to two weeks. Um, and so some do it in the summer so they don't miss school. And some people like to do it during school because they didn't mind missing it. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. All right. Let's talk a little bit about that bar. Is that, you mentioned that bar will eventually come out. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little right. bit about like how you determine how long it's going to stay in? Yeah. So the, um, Patients uh, that are really, really flexible may not be able to have the bar removed because the, the defect can pop back in, uh, down. And so when we see them back in about two years after surgery, um, I literally push on their chest to see how solid they are. Mm -hmm. um, uh, generally, by the later teens, um, they'll be pretty much at the point they're ready for that bar to come out, but just somewhere between two and a half to three years. Um, the um, procedure for that is uh, day, day surgery. So they come in and go home the same day. Um, and that uh, surprises them. But the difference is the chest already corrected. You're really just taking out, um, sliding it out. Is, um, is that something that you're able to kind of do a similar incision on for when you go in to remove it as well? Mm -hmm. okay. Yes. And it's, uh, we, we reopen um, the bigger incision, the little tiny fives are purely for cameras and we don't don't need it at that point. Okay. What is pain recovery after removing the bar like? Uh, 
Uh, I, yeah, we, we again, will use local anesthetic. I had one patient who was driving truck the next day. So um, it, he was uh, quite surprised. And I said, well, again, it's a very different uh, procedure from, from uh, having it put in. I, I would imagine one of the, the big questions that families would have, because I would have that same question if I were in their shoes, is, is how, um, how much improvement in the deformity should they expect after this procedure? Um, I, I would say that it, um, I, it can be um, variable. Uh, the um, pictures um, here show um, uh, correction of a patient for and where, where it was fairly symmetric, um, but you can clearly see that um, the, the sternum was lifted. Uh, the um, lower ribs um, are not part of what can be corrected. So when they have what we call a rib flare or um, that pushing out of the lower ribs, uh, the bar does not correct that. But um, when we correct the sternum, that rib flare does become less prominent. Um, some patients um, do have, uh, the um, asymmetry. And so by lifting um, with a bar, that asymmetry um, may become more pronounced. In this situation, I ended up using two bars um, uh, to get the correction. And um, that meant that um, a, the, the ribs could be lifted um, um, uh, along and, and, and adjusted, uh, but it, it may not be a um, perfectly flat um, response just because the cartilage is not corrected by the bar either. But you can, um, in the, in the, what we see in the operating room is that that indentation gets lifted very nicely with, um, uh, in this case, two bars to kind of cross cover both um, uh, uh, areas of rib that are pushing in. Excellent. Um, do, are the patients able to feel the bars or even after the recovery period, is there ever kind of any irritation from having the bars in? Yes, the, the patients um, tend to be very tall and thin um, and will feel the bars. Um, because the ribs move every time we breathe, um, they will uh, often note um, a clicking sensation um, uh, or popping. Uh, the um, it's, that is not harmful. Um, they um, may feel that it has moved. Um, that does happen um, uh, on occasion, but um, I, I um, haven't honestly seen that um, uh, lead to uh, the deformity um, being a particular problem. Whatever position the bar is in in the operating room, for, for, from my experience, has been um, where it wants to sit. Um, and in the, uh, the situation of where the bars go across or two different interspaces, they tend to be more stable. And so um, they end up with, um, you know, uh, feeling the edges on the outside uh, uh, because they're, they're thin, but it's um, not, not a harmful situation. Okay, excellent. You know, in this day and age where there's a lot metal detectors in a lot of different places where they're flying or getting into certain types mm -hmm. of buildings, is this something that's going to trigger as for metal as they go through these areas? 
Um, they, the, the airports are quite accustomed to this. Um, uh, a family of mine said that they came back from spring break and there was, they, they just automatically told um, kids with bars should go in this line. And so, you know, it's, it's um, uh, something that's um, uh, pretty um, common. Um, you can, uh, with our portal, um, you can sh simply show a picture of the x-ray, you know, confirming that this is what is in the patient. Um, there's no way you're going to take that out to go through the airport. You don't necessarily have have to do the little wristband saying that I have this hardware in, um, but it's certainly an option um, if you if families want to have that. Okay, excellent. So we we didn't really get to this um, yet, but I think it's a really important thing. Do we know what potentially causes this? Um, and then, kind of along the same lines, does it tend to be inherited? Can other family members get it? So the vast majority of these situations are idiopathic, and, and that means that the they, that patient may be the first one in the family to ever have that. Uh, I I do ask about family history because um, some other generation may have coronatum where the sternum is pushed out. Um, uh, and some family members will have scoliosis and the development of the chest is from the back to the front. So if there's a problem with one or the other, um, they, they can be associated. Um, it, it's not hundred um, percent. The patients that have connective tissue disorders like Marfan syndrome or Ehlers-Danlos are also more prone to being tall and thin and having pectus um, excavatum. Mm -hmm. So we do um, ex ask about those things. But for the most part, um, it's uh, unknown. Excellent. Well, we um, have reached the end of our, our talk. Do you have any kind of final words or things um, to sum up for our listeners? Uh, I think the more information you know about pectus excavatum, um, the, the more empowered we are as individuals to move forward. Um, these are deformities um, that are correctable. And I, it does make a significant impact to um, the well-being of that that patient um, and uh, also improves um, their ability to breathe. Yeah, absolutely. And we have much better um, approaches for both healing and recovery than, than were previously available, it sounds like. So yeah. that's, that's very exciting. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Klinkner. It was great having you back again today. So you can reach um, for pediatric surgery appointments um, at 507-284. 3684. And you can also reach us online um, through online appointment requests through Mayo Clinic Children's Center. And have a wonderful day. Mayo Clinic Q&A is a production of the Mayo Clinic News Network and is available wherever you get and subscribe to your favorite podcasts. To see a list of all Mayo Clinic podcasts, visit newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Then click on podcasts. Thanks for listening and be well. We hope you'll offer a review of this and other episodes when the option is available. Comments and questions can also be sent to Mayo Clinic News Network at mayo.edu.